Hey everybody, it's Jason, and before we dive into this week's episode, I want to give you two quick announcements that will help make sense of things. One is we actually are going out of order from what we recorded, so if there's any mention of an episode about Shalom that's actually going to be coming next week, and the reason why we switched up the order was because we recorded on Stephanie Spencer's birthday, and so we wanted to put this episode as close to her birthday as possible in order to say happy birthday to Steph. Secondly, I wanted to mention at the end of this episode, it's going to feel like it's over and then there's more. And the reason why is because we thought we wrapped up and then we didn't. And so we wanted to include all of it because the conversation kept going and took it a little deeper. So if it feels like the episode's over, just hang on until the end. Now on to the episode. and welcome back to Searching the Sacred. We're excited that you are with us in season six and we are recording on May 15th, which some of you out there may know that it that is Stephanie Spencer's birthday. Woo-hoo! So a huge happy birthday Woo-hoo to you. We are so grateful for our fearless leader and we are celebrating her as well as talking about the Bible. Whoa, go figure. No way. Um, yes, you are listening to a podcast about the Bible, Searching the Sacred. So Welcome back, and we are going to be diving into a story from the New Testament where Jesus is going to be talking with a guy named Matthew. So, Matthew chapter 9, Lisa, take it away. Um, We are using the First Nations version, so it's an indigenous translation. I'm going to start at verse 9 in chapter 9 and go through 14. So, Creator sets free, Jesus left there, and as he walked on, he saw a tribal tax collector named Gift from the Creator, Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Creator sets free, Jesus, to the surprise of all, walked up to the tribal tax collector and said to him, Gift from Creator, Matthew, come and walk the road with me. So he got up from his tax booth, left it all behind, and began to walk the road with Creator sets free, Jesus. In the house of the Gift from Creator, Matthew, Creator sets free, Jesus and his followers were sitting down at the table eating with the guests. Among the guests were many tax collectors and outcasts. When the separated ones, Pharisees, saw Creator sets free, Jesus, eating with outcasts, they complained to his followers, saying, Why does your wisdom keeper eat with the tribal tax collectors and outcasts? Creator sets free, Jesus overheard them and said, People who are well do not need medicine. It is for the ones who are sick. Go and learn this wise saying. What I want is kindness and mercy, not animal sacrifices. I have not come for the ones with good hearts. I have come to help the outcasts find the path back home again. Wow. Jason always has a response to that translation. (laughs) There's just so much depth in that translation. It's not just these words that I've read for literally 40 years of my life or heard read to me since I was a kid, you know, like, I mean, Lisa, what was that last line? Like about my translation says, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And you're the translation you read said something totally different. That was so beautiful. Yeah. I have not come for the ones with good hearts. I have come to help the outcasts find the path back home again. The outcast find the path back home again. What a line. That is so moving. 
I love it. I love it so much. Sorry, I don't mean to get so excited about like one little thing, but that was so cool. The outcasts find a way back home again. Well, I think that it, I mean, it It takes us into the place we usually start, which is what stuck out as as we were reading it, as we were listening to it, which Jason, that stuck yeah, out I guess that stuck out a little bit. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> For me, I love that this translation continues to tr- translate people's names, not just transliterate their names. So to hear Jesus called the, the creator sets free and to hear Matthew called gift of creator, um, those names yeah. are so significant. And to actually remember their meaning as we say them is, is much more akin to what it would have been like to be alive during those time periods. And the meaning would have just been more present than it is to us. And to say like what happened, what happened in the life of someone whose name is gift of creator to be sitting at that tax collector booth. Like it makes me curious about that story Mm. to hear his name. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about, um, just the language of outcast and how somebody decided to outcast somebody <laughs> like how you get how you get that label how you get there mm-hmm. why you get there mm-hmm. and thinking that anybody who inhabits that label is somebody that should be welcomed home mm-hmm. so Thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, I think it, maybe let's talk about that word first. So the word in Greek is hamartolos, I think, <clears throat> um, which is sinner. So the, the translator's making a interpretation decision there that's worth talking about to say, how do we hear the word sinner? Mm-hmm. And is that how an ancient person would have heard the word sinner? So the word sinner there goes back to um, hamartano, um, which means to offend or to sin. But it's that idea of sin where it's missing the mark. And so he's gathered with tax collectors and, and people who have missed the mark. Who do we think those people might be and how might that be the same or different from who we would interpret as sinners or outcasts? Like, how do we hear those labels as compared to how do we hear it coming from a place of missing the mark? It reminds me a little bit of what happened to me with my grandma's, um, she had a significant birthday and we were all home. And so I decided to like write a little something for her that talked about her name and what she means to the family. And I got done with it. And my grandma said, Oh, Lisa, I'm such a horrible sinner. I don't deserve any of those things you said to me. Mm. And I was like, I, in my, in my wildest imaginations, would I, I, what? (laughs) what like i i mean and also like revealed to me like oh there is some depth of like stuff that we've been immersed in that i'm still working through 
But, and it broke my heart, to be honest. It broke my heart that my grandma felt that way. But I think sometimes we read sinners in the Bible and it's everybody else. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not me. It's all, it's all the other people. Yeah. Yeah. I think what it does for me is it, when I hear missing the mark, it feels more like behavioral language than identity language. Where so often when you use the term sinners, it feels so much like, well, this is just who you are. And there's no way around it, as opposed to that behavioral language of like, hey, you're headed, you're headed off, you're headed off the path here. Like you're not you're not gonna hit the mark. Like you're going in the wrong direction. And we need to, we need to like, we need to curb that. We need to get back. We need to, you know, get forgiveness, repent, whatever you want to call it. We need to head back. Um, it feels recoverable as opposed to irredeemable. Um, that's how I hear whenever I hear like the translation of it being missing the mark, it's like, Oh, okay. There's something we can do here. Which makes me think about like when, when does a behavioral thing become a label and for what sins does it become a label in Jesus's day and in our day? That something's happening that these folks have been labeled as people who missed the mark. What were the things in that day that got labeled? And what are the things in our day that get labeled? Like I think about how, how, for example, I don't label greedy people as missing the mark and sinners. I don't hear churches calling people who are greedy with their finances sinners. That's because we need them. (laughs) Right. I do hear churches labeling certain sexual choices as sinners. Why are we choosing to label one and not the other? What is is the difference between a behavior and a label? Why do we do that? What does it do to people when we make it a label? Well, and some labels you can actually like shake off a little bit. Um, There are people who have chosen to cheat on a spouse and either make their way back into that relationship or the relationship ends and it moves forward, moves on. And they don't run around with a red letter A for the rest of their life. There's a moment, there's a moment of that label, but it's also like when I think about folks who are incarcerated, there are things that are uh, more permanently attached to remind them and everybody else. Um, and they have to answer for it in weird ways of like, mm-hmm. um, you know, not, not all felonies are created equal. Um, and I, well, I have a whole lot of thoughts about a lot of it. Um, but th- for a lot of folks who are incarcerated, especially for those who have um, more violent crimes or they will always bear that title. Mm-hmm. Like we don't really let people come back. Um, they don't have the option of repenting but i mean we expect them to repent we expect them to do all the work and we still want them to carry the the label the label oh not only do we want them to carry the label we want their their distance from us to stay there yes Right. We want to keep that distance because it makes us feel either safer or more comfortable or more righteous and 
perfect than what having them in our life would potentially do. And, and that, that's the tragedy of it is that, yeah, that we, we use the label to create distance and that's what a label, that's what a label often does is it creates distance. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you're, I mean, the incarcerated and those that are on the road to, you know, whether it's recovery or repentance or justice, you know, redemptively. I mean, they're the most, you know, they, they catch this the hardest. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about gender differences and racial differences. Do we, do we use a label for the same action across both genders or multiple genders, or do we use the same label or do we see it as behavior when it's someone who looks like us or someone who doesn't? I think there's so much potentially there to not maybe unpack on this podcast, but I think that anybody that watches the news at any point in time could probably unpack pretty quickly. Well, here's a part I do want to unpack here actually, because I think it relates. I did a sermon on Mary Magdalene. And, um, and all the ways she's been misunderstood, who she might be, all those sorts of things. And, um, the fact that she, all we know about her really is that she, um, had seven demons cast out of her, but she's often attributed to be the person who washed, uh, Jesus's feet with her hair. Um, and, um, the woman, and then that has made Mary Magdalene into being a prostitute because of the connection of that story is historically. But one of the things that was really striking to me as I was researching and prepping for that sermon is that all it ever says about the woman who washed Jesus's feet with her hair is that she was a sinner. It never says she was a prostitute. And how we made the assumption because it's a female being labeled as a sinner, it must mean she was a prostitute. When really all that label means is she in some way violated the Torah or the welfare of her community. Maybe she was a tax collector. Maybe that woman um, broke Sabbath on a regular basis. Like all of the things that could actually be true of why that, why she was a quote unquote sinner and how we assume because she's female, there's only one kind of sin that matters. Well, that goes to speak even how we judge the woman at the well. Mm -hmm. She had five husbands, clearly. She is promiscuous as all get out, having multiple affairs, when we never are told how she has five husbands. And the likelihood is actually more along the lines of not her choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's an interest, like, for sure. I mean, this speaks to the misogyny that is embedded into this text, given mm -hmm. the time of when it was written. Mm -hmm. And being cautious then. I mean... I would say now having worked with many women who are in prison um, for different levels of sex work, I would challenge anybody to meet one of those women and walk away going, oh, they're just this promiscuous woman out like trying to just make a shit ton of money. Sorry for the swears. <laughs> we get to use the E-label. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, and, and it, it like there's these layers of like what is deeply embedded in us that we go that's a sin out here 
like we for sure but I also feel like that was like some of the kitschy things that we did at church of like it's all level at the cross everybody just put their sins at the like like we did did we ever actually believe that like right right. (laughs) like we don't believe that for a second and and to be I mean obviously these are these are complex issues these are not like simple issues violence against people people being harmed like all of that matters those are like what do we do with, in a society when that is like we want to protect our children mm-hmm. like that is those are valid and good things mm-hmm. and um but what's both true of what we believe like what it like how do we hold what we believe and then actually like live out what this text seems to like point us towards? Like if I, like if we just, like if we just talk about Jesus, if we change it from tax collectors, like we can play at the text a little bit. Let's say Jesus is talking with a bunch of people who are murderers. How, like, do we feel differently about it? Well, and let's think about who let's let's think more about what tax collectors would mean in that context to think about let's let's think about what label we would like who would this be to us? And we could probably have lots of others in the category. So it's not even just one, but let's think about what the tax collectors would mean in this time period, especially to the Pharisees who are asking the question. So tax collectors, what's their job? To collect money from their own people on behalf of Rome and Herod. Okay. So, um, what, how does that feel? What, or what does that mean you have to do? If you are that person who is, his name is Mataya. His name is a Hebrew name. He is, Matthew is a Jewish person who is a tax collector for Rome, taking your money for the Roman government. What would, what's wrong with that? If you are a person he's collecting taxes from, what is that? What is that violating? What is, why would you label that person or other that person? Well, he's doing the well, opposite a subject. of his name. <laughs> okay. He's doing the opposite of his name. He's not being a gift. He's being a taker. Yeah, I mean, you're a subjugated people. You don't have any equal representation in the uh, Roman government at the time, right? There's not like a, uh, let's send off the Jewish prime minister to go sit on uh, the Caesar's council and make sure that our needs are represented fairly. No, you're just under the rule of Caesar. And Herod is not helping you in many, many ways because he's essentially just trying to exploit his own people as well. And so tax collectors are are just exploiting their own people for the political might and power and their own personal wealth um, on the backs of their own people. Because I think some historical dialogue around tax collectors is that they would collect whatever they needed to for Caesar and for Herod, and then they would take some more off the top for themselves, knowing that they had all the power and they had the support of the Roman military, which probably had, you know, maybe a thousand soldiers in Jerusalem at the time or more. And so if a tax collector wasn't getting what they needed out of the people, then they kind of had literally the sword to make sure they got it. Mm -hmm. 
it reminds me a little bit of like, I feel like <laughs> I'm just trying to modernize it a little bit in my head. So it feels very like Sopranos, like mob. Um, like if the mob were wearing collars while they were collecting their money, their, their portion of the money to protect you. Um, like, or if you saw, like you saw them in a different, like in this religious representation, like what you saw reminded you of your faith, but yet it's this really like, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there, like anytime we have money, I feel like we have power and violence coming right alongside of it. So for me, I'm going to make, I'm going to take it back to gender because even as Jason was talking about exploiting your own people in service to the oppressor and what it offers to you to serve the oppressor instead of your own people. So to me, that makes me think of women who, um, who prop up misogyny for their own gain against other women. Um, and how I've experienced that sometimes where I've experienced that sort of sense of, I want this other woman to be with me, to have solidarity with me, but they're against me because of the way it's helping their own power and the, the male that they are with and being like, there's a particular sort of violating feeling to that. When I feel like you are acting towards me, the way that like opposite of what I, what I hope for. Like you are promoting my oppression instead of promoting my well-being. Um, and I think of people who are much more oppressed than me. Like that's the one I can relate to because I am a woman. But I think about like people of color and the violation of somebody working against you instead of for you when you're in an oppressed position that you're trying to get freed from. And how personal that would feel. Yeah, I mean, it's that whole idea of the person that you thought was going to have your your back or was going to be supportive is actually the person who is like directly supporting the person you're against or the the situ or the system that you're against, and you're just it's like you it's like you didn't even see it coming, and then it's personal. But yeah. in some way, but do you think it's that that like that feels a little binary for me? A little bit um like I wouldn't be surprised if that happens with a woman or a man. Like to be like somebody I thought was supposed to look out for me ends up doing <laughs> um like did they really expect Matthew to be that or is it at this like but is or is there just enough of it that you're like hmm that's how it is. Well, it, that's, I think that's a part of it is, 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 is Matthew actually an anomaly or can we say inside this oppressive system, are there lots of Matthews? Mm -hmm. Are there lots of people who are trying to figure out, well, where can I get power? If I can get power here, maybe I'm going to choose to violate my religious beliefs in order to do that, because that's what it's like to be an oppressed group is <laughs> you find power where you can sometimes and where and because that even then puts us in the position of why would Jesus be eating with Matthew? What good does he see there? Well, maybe Matthew's not evil. Maybe Matthew is navigating the complexities of oppression and wealth and power. And he's chosen some things that aren't the best choices for himself as a part of how he's navigated that. Well, it reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if I've said that a lot. I feel like I may have said that a lot. <laughs> Being reminded again of something else. Um, 
<laughs> I'm thinking about how, so one of the things that's kind of, it's not talked a lot about, but is it is a significant, it's actually having significant impact is that young black girls are seen as older than they are. And it's actually impacting their, the school to prison pipeline for young black women. Um, they are punished differently and held to a different standard at a younger age. And so they're actually forced into a prison pipeline much earlier. And so the increase of women who are being incarcerated is actually one of the biggest populations that that number is growing most significantly in the female population. What I know is true is I, that I would say most teachers don't aren't conscious of this bias. They're not consciously deciding. It is not that clear that that's what they're doing. They're trying to maintain a classroom. They're doing whatever it is. I can, I can give a teacher a benefit of the doubt that it's not that intentional. And it's not that intentional that they're aware of it and working to change the narrative and to working to change that pipeline. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not that it just falls on teachers. There's a lot there. But so it's it's almost like I wonder how many tax collectors or people that are in these scenarios that are in that power things like, well, this is my job. It's how I'm putting food on the table for my family. Mm-hmm. Like I've got a lot of work to do. It's dangerous. Nobody likes me. It's a hard life. It's hard work. I'm exhausted at the end of the day. Like I've got time to figure out how to collect taxes some other way. I just need to get it done. I can like, I, mm-hmm. in some ways you can just hear the mantra and the almost almost like agreeing to be cast out because it's probably just easier to be cast out than to try to tread inward. And not only that, the tax collectors might have been able to justify it according to their religion. So the Pharisees are the ones who are upset here. It's worth sort of zooming out to talk about the Pharisees and the priests when we're in the gospels, because they are two distinctly different groups that are often opposed to one another because of how they're handling the power and oppression systems at the time, because both uh, the entire group of Jewish people are sort of wrestling with this question of how do we live as Jewish people as an oppressed people group under the Roman rule? And there's two mainstreams that are sort of defining how to do that religiously. One is the Pharisees, one is the priests. The priests are saying, as long as we have a temple, as long as we adhere to the sacrificial system of the temple, then we will maintain our identity as a people group. Then God will be pleased with us. Then a Messiah will come someday. That's what the priests are saying. The Pharisees are saying, no, no, no. It's not about the temple or sacrificial system at all anymore. In fact, the priests are all corrupt. It's all about the synagogues. It's all about gathering around the scroll to study the scroll, to really see what God has for us and live with the best integrity we can, according to those rules of the Torah, that will make God pleased with us. Then the Messiah will come. Those are actually opposing positions of what to do under Roman rule. And the tax collectors, therefore, could actually potentially be pleasing the priests by what they're doing, because part of the reasons the taxes are high is so that Herod can build the temple. Part of the reason, part of the way that the priests are sort of working is to say, there is a means to an end that is worth it here because Herod, like if we collect the taxes, if we build the temple, that's really what makes us who we are. So let's go ahead and align ourselves with the Roman government because of the way that helps the temple be central. So Matthew could be justifying his choice to be a tax collector according to that priestly position. 
It's the Mm. Pharisees that are the ones that are questioning Jesus being with the tax collector, because according to that Pharisaical position of living, according to all those rules, of the Torah, Matthew is doing wrong. Yeah, that's complex and also really helps kind of navigate some of the tension that we're seeing. And I think it helps give people the benefit of the doubt as opposed to just being like Lisa said, too binary. Here's the righteous. Here's the unrighteous. Here's the good. Here's the bad. Here's the in. Here's the out. Instead, it it makes everybody a little bit more of a complex person in this story, which in every story, everybody's more complex than what labels we want to give them. Um, just like you said, with the women that you meet, like their stories are far more complex than the narrative that society um, and the patriarchy have given them. Um, and so, yeah, here we have Matthew as a complex character, as opposed to a simple sinner who's doing the wrong thing. We can also make the Pharisees complex because sometimes we just have them be the bad guys here. But to say this is a, the Pharisees are the early rabbis. I think we've talked about that in an episode before. They're, they're also a group doing the best they can to navigate a complex question of how to live under oppression and maintain your ethnic and religious identity. They're navigating the question of how do you live well and rightly when you're not actually allowed to live according to all of the ways that you would or could if you were ruling yourself? How do you make those decisions about what to do with an ox, which we talked about in the last episode, when Rome is telling you what to do with your ox? What does right action look like? People would consult the Pharisees and say, I don't know what to do right now because Rome is telling me this. The Torah says this, what do I do? They were respected teachers that helped people figure out what to do. And they're looking at what Matthew's doing and being like, that's missing the mark. That's that's not what you do. Jesus, why are you aligning yourself with that guy? And Jesus doesn't say that Matthew's hitting the mark. I mean, he he very clearly at the end is like, hey, I'm not here for those who are making all the right choices. I'm actually here for those who have missed the mark, which is why he's spending time with Matthew and the others. Like he's acknowledging that they've missed the mark, but his way of handling it is not the same as what the Pharisees want to do. The Pharisees want to kick people out, label people, show like use them as an example for why they're more righteous because their whole thing is if we live by these rules if we follow this exactly to the letter then the messiah will come and the best way to like prove their point is by finding scapegoats for their righteousness and the the tax collectors and other quote-unquote sinners whoever those may be um are easy marks for their perfection and so jesus isn't saying Oh, yeah, wrong. Actually, they're pretty awesome. And he he's saying, like, well, they they need to receive loving kindness and mercy just as much as anyone does. This is the thing that I struggle with though, this moment. Because I think I think they actually have something to offer us. It is not just about making sure they're clean and getting them back. I think that Jesus sits with them because there's actually a damn delight in them. Like it, right? Like there's something about, 
I don't know that uh, it feels too conversion-y if it's just like, if Jesus is like, well, you're the ones that need converting. So I'm only going to be with you guys. That feels weird. That doesn't quite feel. I don't know what to do with the passage. <laughs> I don't know what to do with like, I'm going to pick the sick. <laughs> like what? But I'm also like, we're all sick. So like, what, what's the, how, I, I don't know. I like, I'm also a little bit at the point of my thing where I'm like, this shit's so confusing. Why can't it just, nothing's clear. It wasn't clear before. And it's certainly not clear after Paul's always trying to make stuff clear and he just makes it even more unclear. So everybody's <laughs> confused all the time. Well, okay. So that's, I think where I want to start first in all of those <laughs> delicious questions that Lisa brought us to is to say, we're quick to think of ourselves as Matthew or a tax collector or a sinner in here often. What if we're actually the Pharisees? Who do we, who are we, who do we label? Why do we label? Who would we be surprised to see Jesus eating with? And how would we respond if we saw Jesus eating with those, whoever those people are to us? Um, do you want us to start listing those people? Because I don't really feel comfortable doing that publicly. <laughs> no, we, we can keep that list internal, but to notice that we probably, everybody probably has a someone that they would be surprised to see Jesus eating with. If I have that person, how am I thinking of them? And how am I thinking of me? Yeah, I mean, if I'm if I have that person and I see Jesus with that person, then I I, I I'm wondering why because it's like that's not where you should spend your time because that that's an unhealthy thing. I think the problem for me is that I want to believe. Okay, here's here's my here's my reference. If I see if if Jesus were to show up right now in like New Brighton or Shoreview or whatever, and we're be hanging out with somebody and grabbing lunch. I would either go, wow, he's hanging out with like Mary and Martha and like, like they're just learning all the ways of being kind and benevolent and and like, you know, learning about all the things that Jesus has to teach him or yeah, he's there to help correct the situation. And he might be eating with a powerful person because that person's, you know, priorities are misaligned and Jesus is going to rub off on him a little bit. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't like be like, why would he waste his time with that person? I would just make an assumption that person's needing help. Um, that's what I would want to believe I would say. Well, and I think that even looks more deeply at the Pharisees question because, well, first of all, I think it's funny and revealing about human nature that they ask the disciples why Jesus is doing this. They don't ask Jesus. <laughs> um, so the Pharisees are like, Hey, <laughs> what's Jesus doing over there? They're like, however we hold those questions, but that the, the the, what they're worried about is that he's eating with them, which to me, that says, I don't know if he's teaching them or correcting them. Like what I'm disturbed by is he looks like he's having a good time. He looks like yeah. he's in conversation with that person. I wouldn't mind if Jesus were giving a sermon to that person, but it looks like Jesus is authentically enjoying the company of that insurrectionist. I'll label one for me. <laughs> it looks like Jesus is just like enjoying that person, that that person's a delight. I might be a little bothered by that because I want Jesus to be correcting that person because in my right. mind, so I'm going to reveal my, I have my question was a little leading to what I was thinking. So I'll reveal my own 
damaged heart in this, because in my mind, I am more righteous than that person. Jesus needs to teach that person that Jesus doesn't need to enjoy that person. And that if then Jesus is saying he didn't come for the righteous, I wonder if he's labeling any of us who think that we are better than someone else and more right than they are, that Jesus is like, that's not who I'm having a meal with right now. That like that idea of not coming for the righteous is, I wonder if that's actually applying to more of us than we think, because it's about when we're doing that, the posture we have just taken by othering that person. And to say like, you're not in a position where I'm going to eat with you right now because you have just closed yourself. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that makes sense. I wonder if our uh, proclivity to withholding community is actually the problem for humanity. And that somehow we interpreted the first act in the garden of moving outside of the garden as an exclusion from community. And that's actually, maybe that's not what happened. Maybe in some, like, we just always want to remove people from community that we disagree with, that we think are doing the wrong thing. But what if the invitation is actually keep them in community? Keep I don't, I don't know. I'm flushing this out, but it feels like there's something in this idea. Like there is this idea of like somehow staying in community, like have, continuing to have dinner, like in figuring some of that out. I, like, I do know that the more proximate I am to somebody, the more likely I am to try to understand them, to try to hear their perspective. To Even if we completely disagree, because I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people in my life that we do not think the same thing, but I love them. They're part of my people. Well, it reminds me, like going back to what your grandma said about the letter. This interaction with Jesus is before the doctrine of original sin exists. So I'm going to put out the theory that people would not have thought of themselves as inherently sinful. That wouldn't have been a common belief system, which means that what Jesus is pushing potentially here is that the Pharisees are welcome to sit down if they can call themselves sinners. The only yeah, thing keeping I, them from the table is their own self-righteousness. I like that. And and I think to me, there's a question about, or a, a wondering, I guess, of like, okay, I don't think Jesus is just here for one group of people. I think, G, I think you know, John 3, 16, right? For God's love, the whole world, all of creation, right? So like, I, I, I think Jesus is there for everybody. But I think the way that Jesus gets everyone's attention is going to be different. I think that if Jesus is a itinerant rabbi going around teaching on Torah and teaching on the Hebrew scriptures and helping people unpack what it means, he's probably got a lot more in common with the Pharisees than he does the priest. Like as far as like what he's doing and how he's operating, he's more in dialogue with the Pharisees than he is. So it's almost like they're kind of his people, but not really his people, but they're close enough that he they find themselves bumping up against each other quite often. Whereas the priests are kind of separate. The whole the whole political thing is a little bit more separate. If something's separate from you, you tend to find a way to just get at the table and build relationship. Because if you're not connected to it, but you build that bridge to it, you already gain like some points to be able to potentially do some good work, right? 
But if it's your own group, sitting down at the table, they're just going to expect you to spout off everything that they think because you're one of us. The way to get to your own group, the way to get to people that think similar to you is to actually do the opposite of what they think you should do. You mm-hmm. actually have to be countercultural. So Jesus, by going and eating with the tax collectors and the quote unquote sinners, according to the Pharisees, is his way of saying, hey, I'm building a bridge to a group of people that aren't going to feel connected to me, that are going to think that I would never sit down and eat with them, but I am. And while doing so, I am making everybody else that has all this religious power, I am making them question everything by doing this. And so it's, I think he's actually getting at both groups at the same time, even though it's a very different way of doing it. Well, and actually who gets irritated at Jesus after this is John the Baptist disciples. In verse 14, they're irritated that Jesus isn't fasting. So there's a way to even look at Jesus and say, he seems to be intentionally irritating certain groups. <laughs> um, and and how maybe that's even on purpose. Like what if part of the reason he gets in all these arguments with the Pharisees is because of how much he's for the Pharisees. And this is how to help them see. This is how he hopes they will see. And then he's being for them and for these tax collectors at the same time through his actions. He wants the Pharisees to see a different way. And he wants the tax collectors to know that they're loved. Mm-hmm. And more than just like the individual message, I feel like there is a communal message to that. Like mm-hmm. he's actually doing it on behalf of the community, not just mm-hmm. on the behalf of the Pharisees. It's on behalf of the community. The community is better when we're all able to do this. Everybody in. Mm-hmm. Um everybody's better off when they know they're loved. Yep. Doesn't and matter. For, and for the Pharisees, what's keeping you from seeing your belovedness is your self-righteousness. To the tax collectors, what's keeping you from seeing your belovedness is your outcastness. I'm yeah, going to yeah. do your an act right here yeah. that's going to say, no, it's all, which then goes to the quote. So he's quoting Hebrew scriptures here. When you go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is what he actually says to um, the Pharisees, as he hears them say this. So that comes from the book of Hosea. So it's Hosea 6, 6. And in the book of Hosea, we're in this time period where they're losing the land. It's go- Things are going into exile and they're all sort of asking why. Like what happened that that this is what God is doing? This doesn't make sense to us. And the pro- the prophets are really asking and answering that question in different ways. Interestingly enough, Hosea um, is one of the prophets who carries a similar name to Jesus. Um, so Jesus is, is Yah Yasha. Yah is short for that name of God. Then that First Nations translation said creator, creator sets free. Is, it would be Yah for creator, Yasha for sets free. Hosea's name is Yasha, sets free. Isaiah's name is Yasha Yah, set free by creator. We have these prophets who carry the same name as Jesus at this time period of exile. We have Hosea and Isaiah, same name, just oriented a little differently. And now we have Jesus with the same name. So Hosea is a prophet who's being called to like live out this very difficult, weird life. That is another study for another time filled with questions (laughs) of uh, where he marries somebody who is a cult prostitute and stays married to that person even as they practice that cult prostitution as a symbol of what God is doing to God's people with God's people and so 
Um, in Hosea 6, there's this lament of sorts of God. Oh, Ephraim, what shall I do to you? Oh, Judah, what shall I do to you? Your goodness is as a morning cloud. Your early dew, it goes away. Um, I've talked to you with the prophets. I've, I've shown you my light. I desired mercy, not sacrifice the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But you have transgressed the covenant and dealt treacherously against me. So this is a part of God's lament of where the people have gone. So verse six, I, what, is, what is the actual law about burnt offerings? I don't know, Steph. Why don't you tell us? <laughs> I was going to ask that in an helpful way. <laughs> if I am familiar with the Torah, the Levitical code, are burnt offerings something I'm supposed to do? Right. I don't know what it means. I know some offerings the priest eats and some they don't. So this one's clearly not one that you're eating because you're burning it up. So I'm sure that has specific meaning. Yeah. But the idea being what has been clear is that I am supposed to do them. So sometimes, so when the prophets are coming, people are like, should I sacrifice more goats? Is that what, is that what would make you happy, God? And the prophets are, and God saying, it's not about the goats. <laughs> it's not about the burn. It's never been about that act itself. It has always been about what that act helps you do, who that helps you become. And God is saying, I, it's not, it's never been about the burnt offerings. You miss the forest through the trees. It's been the burnt offerings have been about the knowledge of God. The sacrifice has been about the chesed. So I desire the word here is I desired chesed, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. So we've talked about chesed before on this podcast. What's chesed? Some translations have it as like steadfast love, but I think one of the ways we talked about it when we were studying Ruth was as like that godly way of being in relational wholeness with others. Which, I mean, that was, uh, <laughs> somebody asked me the other day, they're like, do you remember what podcast Jason summarized has said on? Because it was a really good one sentence summary. So you might have just done it again. <laughs> Can you say it again? Yeah, it's that godly ideal way of being in whole relationship with others. So God seems to be saying here, yes, there are there have been rules, but it was always about the formation those rules did. Yes, bring sacrifices because that helps you hold your possessions loosely, which helps you care for your neighbors. Yes, bring burnt offerings because that helps you prioritize your relationship with me. That helps you see something about who I am and who you are. It's never been about the offerings. It's never been about the sacrifices. It's been about what they do. And you've missed allowing that formation to take place. I always wanted the hesed. I always wanted the relationship. I always wanted that wholeness. And you've missed it. Completely missed it. Which is the exact thing you'd want to say to the Pharisees when they're throwing people out and showing and minimizing the wholeness of a human being and shrinking them down to their actions or their 
livelihood or their religious affiliations or political connection and you're turning them into a label as opposed to a person you would say get over all the ways that they are not living up to your standard i get it it's meant to be about connecting with them relationally and you're doing the opposite of that we see you look deep in thought Oh, I'm just thinking about all kinds of things. I'm thinking about all the different ways I've felt cast out Mm. or like, because I mean, while this is like centers on the Pharisees, I feel like it's actually, it is the church today. Like there's a lot of things that um, church as a whole is, um, I mean, I've been a part of asking people to leave because of their sexuality. Like that was some harmful, harmful conversations. Um, I've, um, I've, I've watched people dear to me get kicked out for different reasons and not be allowed to return. I've watched women be stunted from not being able to live out the way that they're gifted and called. Um, there's a lot of ways that we keep people out or like center the story of like, this is what it should look like. Um, I, I think about how jarring it is to have been, having been outside of some of like active worship communities for a minute. Um, the Reverend Dr. Shaniqua Barnes puts said she calls herself a um, church celibate which I feel like I'm going to steal now. Cause I'm like, Oh, I kind of really like that. There's a, like, it's just being celibate from church. It's, and, but being in that camp for a hot minute, it, if I do dip my toe into like, say a worship setting, it's super jarring of like what emotions get pulled into and played into and how everybody's trying to move together. I don't know. Like, it's just an interesting um, it doesn't even have to be an actual casting out for people to know that they're out. Mm-hmm. Like you don't belong. And then I just think about the complexity of humans. I'm like, well, how do we make it so everybody belongs? That feels, feels really big. And then maybe you do have to be frictious and weird like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And in, in some ways it feels like Jesus never actually belongs. Mm-hmm. He doesn't settle or build himself a doesn't build a church doesn't say everybody meet here this is where we're just going to meet from now on you just come find me i don't know like it's just all i was not expecting to be so unravelly by this study today Well, and I, I mean, I, I often, what you said is something I have said that, um, I don't know if I've said on this podcast, which is, I think that part of the problem is that Christian churches have read themselves as the disciples when in actuality, many, if not most churches are the Pharisees, the ones who are determining right and wrong for the community and, and telling people what to do and not to do aren't the disciples. They're the Pharisees. 
And so to humanize the Pharisees and to say, how do we do this? How have we done this? How have we perpetuated harm through the way that we have held our sense of right and wrong instead of being like Jesus and eating with people and saying, I'm just going to eat with you. (laughs) Um, how, How can we normalize that that's a group of people who weren't, who like we other them in a way that we don't reconnect to them as actually being those who we've probably most been like in our history. And if we can then see where they're coming from with a bit of self of compassion of where they're coming from, like they're really trying to get a community of people to live well. They want to honor God. They want to have a sense of communal identity. They're not evil people. They're just doing it wrong. <laughs> um, And Jesus is trying to help them see that as he's also reaching out to the tax collectors and those who've been labeled and making a place of belonging for them. I love, I was just looking at a more literal translation of that last part um, that we talked about at the beginning um, that uh, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance is really full. That's my translation. That just has so much churchy language (laughs) to it. And so I, 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 I just want to say it this way and see if it rings any different to us. I did not come to call the just ones, but the missers into changing their mind. Um, so Dikaios is like the, the what's being translated righteous. It's justice. Like in Plato's Republic, Dikaio and Dikaiosune are talked about as justice. The New Testament tends to translate them as righteous, but it's this idea of like right action. So I didn't come to call those who are, who know the right way to do things. I came for those who are missing the mark into a change of mind. So I think part of the, the, what I've always tried to, what I've always heard in that passage, when Jesus says, I have not, come to call the righteous but the sinners i've always heard him like saying like well you're the pharisees you don't need me as much as these people need me but throughout the new testament we see jesus constantly sitting down at the table of pharisees prominent pharisees at times really popular pharisees very influential pharisees i think their problem is that jesus isn't exclusively sitting down with them, but he's also sitting down with others. And so when Jesus says, I've not come for the righteous, but for those that are sick or those that are off the path that have misstepped, I think he's also talking about them. He's like, I sit at your table. Like I'm here for you just as much as I'm here for them. Like you're not just like, you haven't figured this out. You don't have the right action. You might read from the right text, but you misinterpret it constantly. You misapply it all the time. So I'm going to sit at your table. I'm going to sit at their table. I'm going to sit at all the tables because I'm here to help get things back in alignment. What if this is a way for him to re- to shift how everybody's thinking about that word sinner? Because they're asking, why are you sitting with sinners as a sinner as an other? And again, this is before the doctrine of original sin. So maybe there's a shift that Jesus is actually trying to say towards like, no, this is 
everybody gets that label of missing. If anybody gets that label of missing the mark, everybody gets that label of missing the mark, but not necessarily in that oppressive I'm a sinner from birth kind of way. That's Paul language that comes later. We can wrestle with that another time, but in a, like, we're all human. None of us hit the mark all the time. So I'm sitting with all of us who ever feel like we've missed the mark to know that there is always a place of belonging and love for you. No matter how many times that's happened, that's who I'm here for, for you to know that you're never outside of love and belonging. I like it. But Lisa's got that look on her face. <laughs> I'm so unraveling. Maybe, maybe, maybe we end with, with normalizing the look on G, on, on Lisa's face too, even though people can't see her face. <laughs> to say, when we've gone through deconstruction of any sort, we can be surprised by what unravels us when we look at it again. It's not just Paul. People are quick to blame Paul. But Jesus is actually more irritating than we think. And things that Jesus does and says can push us to have to wrestle with things that we didn't know we needed to wrestle with about who Jesus was. And to say, that's okay. Like, can you trust that there's love and belonging for you? If you get unraveled by those questions, or if you get frustrated with Jesus to say, no questions off limits, there's, there's no tire that you can't kick at. You also are still at the table of belovedness, no matter how unraveled you are by the things that Jesus does to say, there's a place of belonging for you. No matter how mad you are at Jesus (laughs) when you read scripture. I got nothing. That was great. Our clothes. I think so. Lisa, how do you feel? Other than unraveled. Other than just, I think I just, right now my brain is doing the thing that it sometimes does of like just continuing to like fight with any time we try to put a bow on it. Yeah. Yep. Then it's like, nope. Cause I know in the Old Testament, like, cause I was, well, I was thinking about the way that, like there's a part of me that's like, well, yeah, I mean, sacrifices were for everybody. It was really clear. Everybody had an, everybody had a way back, a way in, way forward. And it wasn't always prohibitive. Like sometimes there were big consequences. Um, and that feels good until I'm like, oh yeah, like some people were killed. And then I'm like, that's oh, shit. Then I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> like I can unravel it so far. Like I can it's not bad. Like I can, I can hang in and unravel at the same time, but I also know that right now I'm just, I also don't want to like fight the church. <laughs> I really don't, but I yeah. also don't know how to re-engage in a way that feels like life-giving. Mm-hmm. I don't want to check the box. I don't want right. to do the sacrifice. I don't find his said there. No, I, I, when I left higher ed, I found a lot more peace when I was in a more kind of almost old school setting of church than 
a contemporary setting because I had been in probably thousands of contemporary big band loud emotional settings for like three times a week for years you know for over a decade like 16 years and to just go and have a liturgy where they do a call to worship they say the lord's prayer they sing a couple of hymns the choir gets robes on and does their thing i mean it reminded me of my childhood and probably some haunting ways but also it was just like i am so glad that i don't have to pretend to be emotional right now because i can't i can't do that anymore like I'm so tapped. And so even as I'm like trying to figure out what is the next iteration of the church that I'm currently the leader of, like, I, I don't know to some degree because I know what I don't want it to be that society actually says it should be. And I can't do that. I just, so anyway, I feel, well, that feels, I feel like that's why Jesus went and hung out with other people. Cause it's certainly why I go to the prisons yeah it's just very different reception and different conversation and nobody putting on any type of yeah what if what if jesus is hanging out there because that's the group that's the most honest and he doesn't have to fake it because they're not faking it. And so he gets to let his guard down a little bit with them. I think we should keep some of this in. <laughs> I know. I was like, I didn't press stop. So. <laughs> May it be so. <laughs> mm-hmm. This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Safety.